Take your Bibles, please, and open them to Genesis chapter 1. That's where we are. We started looking at this series, uh, where we're going to be for the rest of the week, and I knew we'd have the teens in with us last night. And so I hope that that, just that foundation of what the Word of God teaches us about uh, there is a God, uh, there is a beginning, and the reason we know this is because of the revelation of Scripture. Uh, I wanted them to hear that. But I also want very much for uh, you adults to be re-reminded over and over again this week of that basic fundamental truth uh, that we hold to in the Christian faith. And that is so important. Uh, I want to be very clear. Most of you, or some of you know me a little bit, and maybe some of you don't know me at all. I'm, I'm not a creation scientist. I'm not some major creation apologist or anything like that. I'm, I'm a husband. I'm a dad. I'm a pastor. And as I look at the first two chapters of Genesis, I see so much there that is so fundamentally important to what we believe and to truths that I want my kids to know and understand and believe and the ways that I want them to interact with their world around them. And uh, it it seems to me that all too often uh, we can feel like we are somehow needing to be on the defensive with what are some of the most basic truths of the Word of God. And I would say that we have uh, the opportunity to look at what we believe, and we can make a statement like, I believe that God created the world, and somehow people can respond to that with some kind of reaction or scorn or scoffing, and yet they would make the same statement, well, I believe in science. And I think sometimes there's there's a fact there that they don't even realize they're still using the same word. And I would say the, the weight of evidence, the burden of proof is clearly on our side. And uh, that information is so important for us to, to start with when it comes to the Word of God and the world in which we live. So we're going to be looking at the first two chapters of Genesis, In the Beginning God, uh, this week, and I hope that will encourage you. It's been an encouragement to me uh, to study it for sure. We're going to go a little more than half a verse this morning. Uh, so I hope that's, that's okay with you guys. But let's look at Genesis chapter 1 and uh, begin in verse 1. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. Follow along in your copy of the Word of God, please. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw the light was good. God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. Then the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed." each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. Just as a refresher and a reminder, uh, some of the basics of this book, Genesis, the the 411, Genesis 411, we talked about a little bit of the foundation. Of course, that word means beginnings. The author is Moses, uh, but we do believe, of course, that this is the word of God. It's a unique style. It's history with theology. It's a masterpiece of a literary work put together in an amazing way by an amazingly educated, competent man. We see themes reoccurring, blessing and cursing, light and dark. God is the undisputed hero of the Bible. Over and over through this book, if you studied the entire thing, you'd see the cycle of God's grace, man's failure, and God's promise to restore what sin has broken. It's a beautiful, powerful, humbling book about God. We're only studying the first two chapters, the creation of the world. 
Uh, but I like to put that little breakdown up there so you guys can see a little bit more uh, as you continue through the book. Anybody start reading it yet? Hey, look, there you go. I wish I had free slushies to hand out. Um, as we start this morning, I want to talk a little bit about dodging the question. And uh, it does seem that there are certain people, dare I say, certain professions, uh, maybe ones that are getting a little more media and national attention right now as we look ahead to an election year, uh, people that are really good at dodging the question. And uh, you can even ask them a question and they say, man, that is a great question. And I'm going to answer that question. But first, I want to ask you this. And then five minutes later, they are nowhere near the question that you asked. And as I dove into studying the book of Genesis, uh, I know how I was brought up. I know how I was trained, how I studied. I thought, I want to I want to study, I want to read a lot of different commentaries and see where people are. I know this is a debated issue, how things uh, came into existence, came into being. And the more that I read, I was a little surprised that I, I began to feel like there were certain Christian authors, uh, Christian commentary writers who it seemed to me, it was almost like they were dodging the question at first. I'd read and I'd read and I'm going, where's, where's your opinion in here? Where's, where's what you think? You're, you're putting forward all the ideas. You're, you're telling me what other people may think, but what, what do you think? And uh, I started to feel that way, but usually by the end, I would come down and, and I would realize that after they had laid things out, they'd, they'd give some pros and some cons, and it wasn't so much that they were unwilling to share their thoughts and their perspectives, but I began to discern a very humble carefulness on the part of many authors with some of these debated issues. And I say that very carefully, a humble carefulness. Uh, Andy Rooney once said, always keep your words soft and sweet. You may be eating them later. And uh, that's a good reminder. That's a good reminder for us as Christians. That's a good reminder for us as spouses and as parents. Always keep your words soft and sweet because you may have to eat them later. When it comes to the conversation about creation and science, I do not like to say creation versus science. How can that which is created, science, be verse against creation? It is creation and science. We cannot just dismiss, we cannot just skim over Genesis chapter one. I like what one commentary said here. He said, God's power... His power and his authority over all human history are predicated on his creative acts. His providence is best understood in light of his creative work. Foundations of the word of God, foundations of the truth that we believe are based in God's creative work in Genesis 1 and 2. We can be clear where God is clear, we should be clear where God is clear. And where there is debate or discussion or things that we feel we are uncertain of, we should keep reading and studying the word of God. And we urge people to keep studying our world. Uh, I think probably every junior boy goes through that stage where dinosaurs are all the rage, right? And my son Jariah is right in the middle of that stage right now. He's very creative. He's very artistic. He did not get that from me. If you've got little boys in your home, well, little boys, little girls too, I'm sure. Have you ever heard of the movies How to Train Your Dragon? How to Train Your Dragon? Yeah, very popular. Well, he, uh, he has drawn and classified his own dragons. And he has over 400 of them. He came up with over 400 dragons that he drew, named, and he classified their strengths and their weaknesses. And right now, as a young boy, his dream, his desire is to be a creation paleontologist. Like, man, there's like two of those in the world. <laughs> I'm like, praise the Lord, buddy, we need some more of those. We need some more of those. We need to keep studying our Bible. We need to keep reading the Bible. And we need to keep studying the world in which we live. How foolish it is for any of us as Christians to fear the findings of science. Nothing that science ever discovers will take God by surprise. And the more they study and the more they research, it seems the harder time people are having denying 
our great and powerful God of creative order. So, what do I believe personally is biblically clear and undeniable? What is biblically clear and undeniable? First of all, what is biblically clear and undeniable is that God created all things. God created all things. We must reject any origins theory that is atheistic, that denies the existence of God. And I'm painting with a broad brush there, but you can take different origin theories and line them up against that bulwark right there and you can eliminate a lot. What is completely undeniable is that God created all things. A second reality is that man is unique in God's creation. Man is unique in God's creation. We're going to talk about that in a few mornings. We must reject any origins theory that would place man somehow as just a higher evolved part of God's created order. We are part of the created order, but biblically, it is very clear that we are distinct, we are unique, we are image bearers in a way that God's creation and other animals are not. What is biblically clear and undeniable is that God created all things and that man is unique in God's creation. What is debated and what may be determined or what we may see and have enough facts to say all of this is for sure, what may be determined later, the age of the earth. The existence or the presence of a gap between the first two verses, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. So there's something there, sometimes called the gap theory, the ruin reconstruction theory. Is there the presence of a gap? Or also the meaning of the word day in the creation account. What does that word day mean? If you don't have the sun and the moon until day four, uh, you know, are those days not solar days? Are they not literal days? Uh, is this some kind of day age? Is there a gap? Is there a progressive creation? What is going on here? These are things that are debated, and I'm talking about among evangelical Christians, I'm talking about among those who would uh, absolutely be in lockstep with the need for salvation through Christ alone. So basically what is debated is not who, but how, how long, and when. I, love, I, I knew it was going to be like this. I knew it was going to be really quiet after I put those three things up there. And everybody's going to be like, oh man, are we about to hear heresy? <laughs> so I will not dodge the question and I will tell you this morning that I personally am still convinced, convicted, and very comfortable with a straightforward and literal reading of Genesis chapters 1 and 2. And an earth that is much, much younger than billions of years old. But I will also never forget an experience uh, with my father-in-law, Chuck DeClean, when we were traveling to South America, and we were at a layover in an airport. And we bumped into a young man, and I, I was just coming out of a seminary class at Faith Baptist Bible College with Dr. John Whitcomb. I had just taken a week-long module on creation with Dr. John Whitcomb. And we sat down in the airport and struck up a conversation with this young college student. And of course, uh, in no time at all, Chuck is telling him about the gospel. And I'm just sitting there um, you think I talk a lot. If I get around Chuck, I don't get to talk at all. He gets to do all the talking. Amen. And yeah, it happens. And so we're there and we're, we're talking. And, uh, and as he's sharing the gospel with this young man, suddenly the young man says, yeah, well, well what about evolution? What about how the Bible says this? And, you know, obviously that can't be true. And in my head, I was like, this is my moment. I've just been studying this for a week. And I jumped in and I, and I started unloading everything that I had just learned on this guy. And my father-in-law got really quiet. 
And, uh, and I noticed that, and I noticed that was out of character for him. And uh, the Holy Spirit must have been telling me to shut up because I finally did shut up. And I noticed that my father-in-law jumped right back in uh, talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And later on, uh, my father and I were sitting and talking, and I just said, hey, I, I kind of noticed, you know, I was trying to be helpful there if that wasn't helpful. And he made a statement to me that I don't think in any way, shape, or form diminishes the value of what we believe about creation. I want you to understand it is completely important. It is absolutely important. The first book of the Bible is essential to the rest of the book of the Bible. But my father-in-law said this. He said, Stephen... You can convince someone that God created the world and they can still go to hell. Because there's only one name under heaven given by which men must be saved and it is the name of Jesus. And that is where we must start. And that is the truth that people need. They need a savior from their sins before they can ever understand the value of a creator. So, I'm not dodging the question. As we continue, uh, same big idea as I gave you last night, actually. I want you to see that the created world reveals the creator God. Biblical cosmology reveals to us the incredible power, simplicity, and beauty of the world which God made. Creation is showing us God. It is revealing who he is. He is revealing himself to us in creation. As Isaiah 45, verse 18 says, For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is God, who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I am the Lord, and there is no other. As we study these first two chapters, I want you to look at a division that we're going to make, and that is that God formed and then God filled the world. God formed and then God filled the world. This is how we're going to study these two chapters. This is how we're going to tackle it. And it breaks nicely into these two parts. You take verses, uh, excuse me, you take days one through three, you see God's forming the world. You take days four through six, and you see how God filled his world. He formed the world and then he filled the world. So let's look this morning at, first of all, the origin of all things. The origin of all things. I mentioned last night, and I keep reminding you of these things because I think it's so important. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, people of old receive their con- commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what was seen was not made out of things that are visible. Uh, this is the argument not only of Genesis 1 and 2, but this is supported through the rest of Scripture that we see that the things that are were not made out of things that are visible. You take those Words, there's much debate over what those Hebrew words tohu wabohu mean, unformed and uninhabited. And we start with that. That's right there in in the first verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. And once you get through all the debate on that, what you find is that right afterwards, God is saying, I'm going to change that. Yes, it is without form and void, much like a a lump of unformed clay. But God is ready to change that. God is ready to do something with what is there. God created all of it. He made it. It is there. The elements now exist, and he is going to do something with them. Uh, It's much like uh, an eager runner. The Spirit of God is hovering Over the face of the waters. That's the image that we're left with at the end of verse 2. There is this unformed lump and there is this eager spirit of God who is ready to fulfill the word of God and bring creation about. This is the uh, cycle that you'll see over the next several days of creation. There's the announcement. There's the command. There's the fulfillment. There's the execution. There's the approval. There's the subsequent word. And then the day is numbered And the cycle starts over again. If you look at the first verse, verse 3, and God said. God is acting. God is intentional. God has a plan. We won't take time to highlight every single word, 
But as you look at the activity of God in Genesis chapter 1, all of the verbs point back to God. God said, God saw, God did, God declared, God said it was good. All of these verbs are pointing to God. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. You see a very unique word, the word created. This is the word that points to God's divine activity. This is God's divine activity. This is God bringing into existence something out of nothing. This is not building. This is not baking. This is God creating out of nothing. Uh, just about a week ago, uh, we had some friends over who are much more handy than I am, and one of the storms that went through Huxley here about a month ago uh, did some damage to our porch. We needed to do some fixing on that. We actually ended up replacing uh, the entire deck boards, and uh, they came over, and it was great. I was fun to be part of the process, and now we've got pictures of a nice new deck sitting there. But as any home improvement project that I've ever seen, uh, it didn't go quicker or cheaper than we thought it would. Uh, there were Menards runs. You had to go get materials. You had to go get things. Why? Because as human beings, even though my friends have the ability to take the materials and make them into exactly what we want, uh, they do not have the, material, uh, the ability to snap their fingers and make those materials appear out of thin air. I was very thankful for uh, my wife and my friends' wives because not only were my friends helping me build the deck, but the wives were feeding us and all of our kids. Uh, we, all, we all have large families, so all this cooking had to go on. Well, as much as wives may enjoy snapping their fingers and wishing that food would just show up, uh, that's not the way it works. You have to have the grocery store run. You have to have the ingredients. You have to cook them, prepare them, bake them, or whatever. When we think of building, when we think of construction, even when we think of that word creating, in our day and age, we often think of creating something and assume that it is creation out of materials that exist. My boys can create things out of Legos, out of the Legos that exist. But this word, when found in the Old Testament and applied uniquely to God, is always speaking of what is alone a divine activity, and that is the creation of something out of nothing. Like the question we discussed last night, why is there something rather than nothing? Because of God. Only God can bring something out of nothing. It is his work. It is God's work. God said, let there be light. And light came into existence. Light that had no source other than God himself. Revelation 21, 23. And the city has no need for sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light. And, it is, and its lamp is the Lamb. God is the source of, well, that's a spoiler alert right there. <laughs> I quit. Take this stupid thing. <laughs> Verse 4 says, what God made was good. What God made was good. This is not like the way we use the word good. If you walk up to somebody and say, hey, how you doing? They say, oh, good. Your radar usually goes up, Right? Good is kind of that common answer that we give. Oh, we're doing good. We're doing all right. It doesn't mean anything, but when God creates, when God says that it is good, it is something that is whole, it is complete, it is perfect. It is perfection, and it is perfect in its purpose. Hold on to that, because we're going to talk about it more. Every time that God pronounces the word good over his creation, what he's making, what he's forming, that word good is actually connected to what's coming next. God is making the light and the dark for a reason. The reason it's good is not because God looks and says, oh, light and dark. He's saying, no, there's not only a perfection to what I have made, but there is a perfection to its purpose. What God had made was fulfilling the purpose of his creation. Verse four, and God said, and God saw, and God separated why do I highlight these words in verse 4? Because I want you to see that what God is doing with the light and the dark was done in a moment. 
God said, God saw, and God separated the light and the dark. Why is that significant? Well, because while darkness may be, and even in the scripture it is, a symbol of evil, nothing about the dark diminishes the power or the sovereignty of God. This is where my slide comes in here. Okay, the light side and the dark side of the force might make for good movies, or not good movies, depending on what you think. But the light side and the dark side of the force in no way represent the power of God over light and darkness. God is completely sovereign over the light and over the dark as he created it. He won't create the sources of light until the fourth day, and yet we see that God has divided them, God has separated them, light and darkness are functioning. Notice it says there was evening and there was morning with no sun, no moon. There was evening and there was morning. God is using his sovereign power even in the existence of light and darkness. Look at verse five. And God called the light day and the darkness he called night and there was evening and there was morning the first day. He called it light and he called it dark. This is significant. This is power. This is authority. The ability to name something implies authority. I know a lot of you in here have kids because a whole bunch of kids left and you're what's left. So some of them have to be connected to you guys. Your kids have names. Now, there may be a couple weird situations in here that you want to come up and tell me about. That's fine. But for the most part, I would assume that the kids got their names from their parents. You named them. And uh, I, I don't know if that was, you know, a, if you realized the exercise of authority that you were saying there, you know, I'm going to name my child. You know, I am accountable for them. I'm responsible for them. I, you know, I, I created them. And so I have that level over there. I can, I can name them. That is a general thing that we understand, but highlighting God's naming of all things is a reminder of his authority. With the assistance of my wife, I named my children. And that was exercising authority. We had four boys and we had a fifth one coming along. We thought we were only good at making boys. And so, you know, we don't cheat like some people do and find out in advance. So we have to get two names ready, to each their own. If you want to do it wrong, that's fine. <laughs> and so as the fifth one was, was cooking in the oven there, we came up with our names, and, and uh, I, had the name, I had the name Emma Grace uh, picked out. We actually had the name Emma Grace picked out uh, for our firstborn, because I really like that name, Emma Grace. Uh, my wife is Ellen Grace, so I thought that was a cool connection. And then when our firstborn was born, uh, he was a boy, obviously, so we named him Samuel. We got pregnant a second time, and Ellen's like, well, we need a new girl name, too. I said, no, we don't. We didn't use the first one. And uh, it sat on the shelf for a long time, but we kept it. And uh, so this, this fifth one is coming along, and I was talking to, uh, talking to a buddy of mine. I was actually talking to Ben Hutchison at our church in Horton, and he said, well, you got names picked out yet? And and uh, no, I think this was after the baby was born because we didn't tell the names in advance either. And uh, he said, what, what name did you have picked out for a boy? And I said, well, I had actually, actually kind of liked uh, the idea of the name Zedek Wayne. Uh, my grandpa's name is Wayne, and I really like the name uh, Zedek or Zadik. It's uh, Hebrew for righteousness. And, and uh, it didn't, Zedek Wayne didn't make it through the screening process, but uh, <laughs> Zedek Zedek James was going to be okay. So we had Emma Grace and Zedek James. And so I said, those, are, those were our options. And my friend Ben looked at me and he goes, boy, I'm glad it was a girl. So <laughs> apparently he didn't approve of the name, but guess what? He doesn't get to make that choice. The choice, the naming of something implies the authority that is there. This is the origin of all things. The origin of all things comes from the creator, God. I want you to see not only the origin of all things, but I want you to see God's forming work. 
God's forming work. I told you we're going to look at God's forming work and God's filling work. Well, let's look at his forming work. Verse 6, and God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. Uh, this expanse, um, what we would call uh, our, our atmosphere, uh, our atmosphere or the, the sky, the heaven, outer space, and this is in the midst of the waters. Now, we're not going to go all the way uh, to Genesis chapter 7, and maybe some of you have studied this before or heard it preached about uh, in, in your, your churches, uh, but I do think that this upper water uh, this expanse, this sky that is in the midst of the waters probably points to a reality that is not true of our world anymore. Uh, this vapor or this water crystal canopy that would have affected the Earth's climate, climate dramas, uh, dramatically. Uh, perhaps it was the source of the great waters of the flood in Genesis 7. But we have between these waters this atmosphere. Verse 7 and 8, it says, And God made the waters uh, from the water, and God made the expanse and separated the waters uh, that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. Again, we see that God made. He is forming his creation. This is day two. On day nine and 10, it said, and God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth. And the waters that were gathered together, he called the seas. And God saw that it was good. Now land mass appears. The earth, which was previously covered by water, goes through major topographical change. Basins sink down. Reservoirs of water are formed. Mountains and dry land emerge. God names it, and it is good. Verse 11, and God said, let the earth sprout vegetation and plants. Vegetation and plants show up on the third day, uh, yielding seed and fruit trees, bearing fruit uh, in which is their kind, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So we see these plants showing up, uh, these plants that will uh, have their seed in them. They will produce fruit, and each one of them uh, is bearing fruit according to its kind. Without going too far into the debate on this, I do think that what you find there is a description of creation uh, that already has uh, the appearance of, of age. Uh, I can't really grow anything. That's not a gift that I have. But I do know people who, who plant uh, fruit trees, and you don't get the fruit right away, right? It takes some time. It takes some time. And so what God is describing here is something that would have immediately represented full maturity, and I do think that is significant. Again, there's something that has been repeated over and over in this text, and I think that we need to pay attention to it. God is creating, and there is conformity to what God creates. What God makes and what God does, all of it reproduces according to its kind. What comes out naturally through the process is according to its kind. This is a fundamental biblical truth. And uh, again, stage of life, I, I just have a lot of kids right now. So that's, that's what movie night represents for us. Even Master Ugwe knew this, okay? If you plant a peach tree, you're going to get a peach. You're going to get peaches on a peach tree. You can wish for an apple or a pear, but you're going to get a peach tree. And this is something that is not, um, not unimportant that God has set in the created order for things to reproduce according to their kind. We can have hybrids of all kinds of plants. We can have all kinds of species of dogs. But what we see and what we observe is an obedience generation after generation, century after century, millennia after millennia, that God's creative order obeys his created design. 
God has placed design in creation. And his creation follows and obeys that design. In verse 13, we have the third cycle closing, or we have the cycle closing for the third time. Uh, we see that it says, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. And it was all good in God's eyes. I want you to note something significant about the third day. Uh, day three and day six, which we'll study in the future, uh, are showing to us that God's creative work is, is escalating. There was more done. There was a second creative act on the third day. God is being more detailed. He's being more specific. He's interacting in a greater way with his creation as it unfolds. You could say it this way. The creation account is building. And that's going to be very significant when we come to day six. But as we power down here in the first several verses of Genesis, we see that God's forming work, his forming of the earth, is complete. The earth is no longer formless. The earth is no longer formless. It is still empty, and God is preparing to fill it. So this is the origin of all things. This is God's forming work. And now we want to close today by looking at what do we learn from creation? What do we learn from creation? The creation account is not given to us to entertain us or to satisfy our scientific curiosity. Creation, again, is a means of God's self-revelation. You're going to see this verse over and over again. This is why I encourage you to memorize it. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. As I was studying for these messages, I read an article by a man who's worked with NASA for 40 years, a NASA scientist for 40 years, and his, summar his summarization of all that he has seen, all that he has learned working with NASA for 40 years was this, the universe is God's calling card. In 40 years working with that organization, he became even more convinced than when he started that the heavens completely declare the glory of God. The universe is showing who he is. So what do we learn from creation? First of all, what we learn is that God is self-existent and autonomous. God is self-existent and autonomous. God had no cause. God needed nothing. He acted in creation according to his own will, and he acted according to his own glory. As Paul said to the Romans, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. This is the reality of our creator God. He is self-existent and completely autonomous. God is also all-powerful. He is sovereign and he is authoritative. He is all-powerful. He is sovereign and he is authoritative. Uh, Okay, this is, this is the time where I need you to bring me that water bottle, would you, Austin? Would you please bring me a drink? Thank you. Do you see how I just exercised my authority there? <laughs> I asked him for a water bottle, and he graciously, kindly brought me a water bottle. Now I'm going to demonstrate my power for you by opening this water bottle. Are you ready? I really hope I don't have to ask my wife for help again. All right, there we go. I have demonstrated my power by opening the water bottle. <laughs> Thank you. You guys really do feel bad for me after the whole uh, slide debacle, don't you? Some of you are going, I don't know if he's going to get it. <laughs> now I am going to show my, my self-sovereignty by quenching my own thirst and taking a drink from this water bottle. I'll try not to pour it on the mic, Seth. There we go. I have demonstrated for you authority, power, and sovereignty. And we will talk more about the image of God and man. Those are obviously, it's a, it's a silly illustration to show you all three of those things. But we see and we understand authority, power, or force, 
and sovereignty, controlling of our situation. We see that in, in all kinds of different ways in our universe every day, in your own life, uh, in the world in which you live. Power, authority, and sovereignty are exercised all of the time. And so when we hear words like that, maybe they don't sink in. What we need to understand from Genesis 1 and 2 is that the level of power, sovereignty, and authority that God has are completely incomparable to anything you have ever seen. The power of God, the sovereignty of God, and the authority of God are completely different than anything that we can imagine. He spoke and light came into existence. Without thought or effort, he is sovereign over everything in the universe. And his authority knows no end because everything that exists is his creation. So he has authority over it all. Don't just think of those words, power, sovereignty, and authority in the same way that we might apply them to our lives or how we work on a daily basis. God's power is all power. God's sovereignty is all sovereignty. God's authority is complete authority because of his creative work. What else do we learn? We learn that God is orderly in his design. God is orderly in his design. We'll talk more about that in the future as well. We'll look at the big picture here today, but we'll drill down some more into this in the mornings ahead. God has intentionality. God shows order. Our earth is not just a chaotic collection of chance. No, he is sovereign in his authority. And the fourth thing we see, the final thing we see this morning is that God is the lawgiver and he is graciously good. God is the lawgiver, and he is graciously good. Uh, you, guys have been, you guys have been with me, and I'm thankful for that, you know, as I talk about how to train your dragon and master Uguay. And so, you know, I, I feel like some of you are probably where I'm at in stage of life, and maybe you have a few of these uh, laying around your house. Does anybody have Legos in their house? Uh, anybody think if they could get a refund on all of their Lego sets, they'd be set for life if you could get full price? <laughs> Okay. Uh, we have four boys, and so we have uh, an incalculable amount of Legos at our house. And if you've got Legos in your house at all, I'm going to guess that you have had this experience uh, where one of the children makes something, designs something, creates something out of Legos, and then their sibling breaks it, and there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And it is a total meltdown because I made that and they broke it. What happens when the child who made the spaceship or whatever it was decides they're tired of the spaceship and they tear it apart themselves? Is there the same level of consternation? Absolutely not. Why? Because even a child, a small child playing with their toys understands that level of authority that comes just from the creative act. I made it, therefore it is mine. And you couldn't break it. You shouldn't have break, broke it. God's authority, his ability to tell us what he expects of us, God as the law giver is completely appropriate because of his created work. God is sovereign over all that he has made. God is authoritative because he is the one who made it. But I intentionally added the second half of that as well. God is the lawgiver and he is graciously good. We're going to see this more and more. But I want you to know that that word, that phrase, it was good, it was good, it was good. Every time the Lord says that about his creation, it is pointing forward, it is looking forward to the purpose for which he is creating. 
And that was his good, gracious blessing upon us. God's goodness is seen in creation, not just in perfection, but the purpose for which he is making it, and that is for his ultimate creation, mankind. So I ask you this morning, how are you responding to creation? God is the subject of this narrative. He is the creator, the sustainer. He is the sovereign God of all. And this demands a response from us. This demands a response from us. You say, Pastor Stephen, you have not told me anything this morning that I don't already know. Good, I'm very glad for that. Have you responded by believing in this truth? Do you believe in this truth? Remember, Genesis starts with an assumption, not an argument. And this is very, very significant. Because there is another truth that is assumed and it must be believed. The truth that Jesus Christ is the way and the truth and the life. And no one, no one comes to the Father except through him. The creator of the universe has made it very clear that mankind in his fallenness has no ability whatsoever to work our way back towards a righteous God. We cannot earn it, we cannot buy it, we cannot build it, we cannot make it of our own. But God in his goodness and his graciousness sent his one and only son, the just for the unjust, the righteous for the unrighteousness, the unrighteous, that by believing in him, we might have salvation and eternal life. Do you know that you know that you know that today? Why do I say that for a room full of people who are spending a week at a Christian camp? Because the reality is that if even one person is sitting in here today who does not know Christ as their Savior, you need today to trust in the Savior and the Creator. You need to know Christ. You need to believe the God who made you and believe what He is saying to you. You need forgiveness of sin, you need a home in heaven. If you don't know Christ as your Savior today, I would love to talk to you. My wife would talk to you. Any of the speakers, Pastor Matt, I'm sure there are many people in here who would love to show you today how you can have a relationship with the God who made you. The Bible makes it very clear that we have sinned against our Creator God. We are guilty and helpless before Him, but God. But God shows His love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Amen? Believe the creator God and obey him. Obey him. God made you. He has authority over you. He graciously wants your eternal good. Submit your life to him. Obey him and then you will find joyful purpose. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. This is the reason for which you were created, obedient worship to your creator God. We have so many conversations around our house about using things for what they were created for. No, your baseball bat was not used to hit rocks into the neighbor's yard. That is not its design, its purpose, or its function. No, the remote to the TV is not used to hit your brother in the head when you're not happy about his selection of viewing choices, whatever. We talk over and over again about don't use it for this, don't do that. You know Why? Because if you use something the way it's not supposed to be used, it ends up broken or somebody ends up hurt, right? I'm not the only house that this happens in, I don't think. And if you try to take your life and use it for your own glory and your own satisfaction and say, I'm going to do what I want with my life, I'm going to live my life the way I want it to be, you will end up broken and dissatisfied and unhappy because God created you and made you for his glory. And you will find joy and fulfillment and satisfaction in living that way. That is your spiritual act of worship. Believe the creator, obey the creator, and worship the creator. Your worship to him is the foundation for your obedience. 
Obedience to God must flow from a heart that is worshiping him in humility. God is indescribably worthy of our worship. I I don't want to get ahead of myself, but I can't wait till we start talking about some of God's filling work, okay? God is indescribably worthy of our worship. You're going to see it again. You might as well memorize it. I'm telling you right now. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. The sky proclaims his handiwork. I once heard someone say that the size of the universe is way, way too big for us to be alone. Space is just way too big for us to be alone in the universe. There's got to be aliens out there. There's got to be other life forms. And we just got to find them. It's like a cosmic game of hide and seek, and they're really winning. Well, I think that Psalms answers that question for us. The universe that God created is not just a zip code for people to live in. The universe that God created is a portrait of the God who made it. The universe is a portrait of the God who made it. And if the universe is a portrait of the God who made it, it's just about the right size. Listen to this quote for me, please. We'll end with this. Creation's mystery and its maker beckon us to know the one in whom we live and move and have our being. The opening section of Genesis introduces us to the creator. He is the main character of the book. He is the main character of all scripture. The creation account is theocentric. It is God-centered. It is not creature-centered. And the purpose of the book is to glorify the creator by magnifying him through the majesty of the created order. The passage of scripture that we are studying, Genesis 1 and 2, is doxological as well as didactic. It teaches us as well as exclaims his glory. It is a hymn as well as history. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this teaching, glorifying, revealing text. And I pray that you and your sovereignty would allow us to dive deeply into it this week for your glory. May we come away being reminded, re-reminded perhaps, of wonderful, wonderful truths about our creator God. We ask this in Christ's name, amen.